This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Gentrification Down the Shore, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020, Molly Volman Macris and Mary Gada engage in a rich ethnographic investigation of Asbury Park to better understand the connection between jobs and seasonal gentrification and the experiences of longtime residents in this beach, uh, uh, beach community city. Uh, Molly, Ma- Molly Volman Macris is Associate Professor and Program Coordinator of Urban Studies at Gutman Community College, which is part of the City University of New York. Mary Gada is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Gutman Community College of the City University of New York. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, Molly, and welcome, Mary. Hi, thanks for having us. So uh, to get started, could you each tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Molly, why don't you go first? Sure, thank you. So Mary and I started working together at, at Gutman at CUNY in 2015 when Mary joined the faculty. And we really initially connected over our shared interests in urban sociology and gentrification and New Jersey. And we should note, we are both New Jersey residents now. (laughs) Um, We were both interested in Asbury Park. It's a really interesting place. And we recognized that so much of what we each had studied elsewhere was happening there in Asbury Park. So I had done previous research on gentrification and youth development and school choice. My background is as a New York City public school teacher. That's how I started my career. And then I worked for youth development in New York City. And my PhD is in urban systems with a focus on education policy and the urban environment. So all of this was like a really nice fit with Mary's interest. I don't know, Mary, if you want to jump in with your background there. Yeah, thank you, Molly. Um, So my background is in sociology with the real focus on employment and workforce development. Um, And I've actually done work in New Jersey before. I did a book several years ago where I went, um, an ethnographic book, where I went undercover in the unemployment and one-stop system in New Jersey. Um, So I, um, it was a really, this opportunity to work with Molly was a way of bringing together both our interest in kind of understanding what was going on in Asbury in relation to employment, jobs, and the changing um, and uniqueness of the gentrification um, that was occurring. Um, so we were able to, and both of us are ethnographers um, and qualitative researchers. Um, so that was also, um, you know, an opportunity methodologically too. 
And I think for Mary and I, when we select research projects, especially big projects like a book project, we consider kind of, you know, of course, the important research questions and hypothesis that we can pursue. But we also want our work to have implications around social justice and policymaking. Um, And this book project really fulfilled that for both of us. And it was really just a compelling case study. So we were able to get um, some PSC CUNY grants to help us do the kind of in-depth qualitative research that we wanted to do. And uh, we started the study in 2016. So it was from 2016 to 2019. And um, also our work at CUNY. So in the classroom, I teach classes on gentrification. I've taught class on urban education. Um, We're always learning from our students and from our faculty colleagues. So it was just a really nice mix of like sort of our day job of teaching as well as our research interests um, that led us to this work in Asbury. That sounds great. So to step back a little, um, uh, Molly, could you tell us a little bit about the history of Asbury Park? Uh, you know, when did uh, this city begin? And, and, and um, to kind of fill in the picture a little bit about what it looks like today. Sure. Yeah. So our book really traces the current dynamics in Asbury Park back to its founding um, and its history. The founding was in 1871. Um, And we really look at that through a lens of race and, of course, class. Um, But really, we look at the anti-Black racism that was evident from the very beginning in the founding of Asbury Park and the way that, you know, Asbury Park was a dynamic resort community in its heyday. It had, you know, 200 hotels and restaurants. Black um, individuals were employed as janitors, hotelmen, waiters, but they weren't allowed to live on the east side of town. And when I refer to the east side and the west side, um, that's something we talk about a lot in our book and that's uh, relevant still today, but was also relevant then. Um, so in, in the community was very segregated from the start. Uh, black individuals were not allowed to swim during the day on the east side and in Asbury Park. The founder, Bradley of Asbury Park has been cited you know, as someone, there's a statue that we talk about in the book that Um, a very prominent statue in the community. And many activists would like to see that statue removed because of this sort of racist history that we now see reverberating so much later um, in time. But one of the things that we also look at in the book is sort of like the history of urban change that happened in Asbury Park as it happened in many other communities. So, you know, the post-Fordist economy, the, you know, mid- like mid 20th century, we see these changes to many urban centers and Asbury Park also experienced those changes. But one of the things that I think is interesting about Asbury Park is this seasonal um, vacation element to it, because as many cities lost population to suburbanization and much of what was happening during that time period, it was sort of amplified in Asbury Park because air travel became less expensive. So people had many more options for vacations than just going to you know, the Jersey Shore. So we see a real change in the community. And often in my area of research and gentrification literature, we sort of write off that period of time. And then we start to talk about a quote unquote renaissance that occurs when a community gentrifies. So our book really tries to tell a deeper story about what was happening during that time, right? This was not actually an isolated ghost town that was then discovered by gentrifiers in the 2000s. Um, It was very important for us to tell that story. And in Asbury Park in particular, Um, The LGBTQ population currently plays a huge role in the community. You know, you see rainbow flags around Asbury Park. It's known for its diversity. Oftentimes that 
that community is also blamed for some of the gentrification and inequity that we see today, this quote unquote gaytrification that's been researched. Um, but we also talk in the book about how, of course, that community was present long before um, the New York Times started covering this quote unquote renaissance, as were artists and creatives and also, you know, many many dynamic individuals were living in this community when other places weren't writing about it as a cool beachfront city. Yeah. I mean, just to build a little on that, I mean, one of the things I think ethnography really allows us to do um, is to really dig into some of the lived experiences that are masked often in the kind of the overriding narratives, um, as Molly was pointing out. And I mean, I think that is something um, in the beginning chapters of our book that we really try to do is share you know, the history, but also share the vibrancy of that history too, right? The vibrancy of the West Side. The music did not begin with Bruce Springsteen, for example, in Asbury Park, right? Um, it existed before Springsteen, right? Um, and also how that history obviously reverberates today um, when we think about, for example, you know, a seasonal gentrification, you know, the impacts of on the LGBT community today also. Um, so I think that... Um, is really important um, when we look at our, the systems and that are in place today, the opportunities for employment, the opportunities for housing, um, to really get at what's really occurred. So we spent a lot of time talking with uh, individuals throughout the city, uh, throughout Asbury Park, um, to who have who have spent some of them decades and <laughs> decades, and um, in order to kind of you know get kind of the real lived experience, not just the like that narrative story that we hear. Sure. So, um, Mary, uh, you uh, already mentioned several times the term gentrification, mm -hmm. and gentrification is really important uh, lens to understand uh, uh, different dynamics um, in your book. What do you mean by the term gentrification? And you also talk about seasonal gentrification. What do you mean by that exactly for people yeah, who are so, not familiar with these terms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, seasonal gentrification, I think, is that this concept is what actually part of what drew Molly and I um, to um, to look at this at Asbury Park. And Molly certainly is more of an expert on gentrification research than I am. So maybe I can just give a very brief overview and then turn it over to Molly. But, um, you know, the idea of seasonal gentrification is when we think about a, a town, um, a working class, uh, middle class uh, community being gentrified by vacationers, second homeowners. And what is the impact of that? Often those individuals are there for a season, right? And here we're talking about a summer tourism season. Um, but what does that mean for the businesses um, catering to these vacationers and the impact on the locals? What does that mean for op employment opportunities? The school systems, right? Often these individuals aren't invested as much in the school systems. Um, so trying to understand the actual impact, um, what's exciting about Asbury is understanding the impact of seasonal gentrification on the local residents, a year-long residence. We do always point out that although we call it seasonal gentrification, its effects last through all four seasons of the year for, for residents. And just to add to what Mary said, yeah, I mean, when we talk about gentrification, we're talking about um, a community that is changing from low income or working class into a more middle class and upper class community. With that, often there is also a racial, um, you know, demographic shift that is seen. And we also see that and explore that in Asbury Park. Uh, something that's interesting about this as a gentrification, um, you know, someone who studies gentrification in other communities is that this is harder to get at quantitatively in a gentrified, seasonally gentrifying community. Because if you think about, you know, where we get our quantitative data, um, and our data sources, people 
people report at their primary residence. So in many ways, seasonal gentrification can be sort of underreported because um, we're not seeing those, you know, people who have primary residence elsewhere or use this as, you know, uh, as a a source of income and they rent it out. I was a bit hesitant in the beginning, I think, to try to like delineate this different term of seasonal gentrification just because a lot of scholars have already talked about how gentrification is sort of overused. I've even heard people say gentrification has been gentrified, like the title. <laughs> um, so, you know, it it is used so often now that sometimes you feel like maybe it's kind of losing its meaning in some ways. But I also think that it's a very powerful term. And it's something we wanted to explore, certainly. And we want to put pressure on policymakers and residents to be thinking about that and the effects of gentrification on longtime residents. So that was really important. And then we just really saw these interesting kind of differences. So particularly, Mary mentioned education. But if you think about a seasonally gentrifying community versus maybe a different community that's gentrifying, you see residents who are not choosing to send their children to school or even considering sending their children to school in the local community because, again, that's not their primary residence. So their children attend school elsewhere. So they're less perhaps you know, invested in the school system or in wanting to pay higher taxes for the schools. There's developers and their pilot agreements. There's all these different aspects um, you know, that are present in many gentrifying communities, but we saw a sort of amplified and slightly different because of the seasonality. Right, right. And um, speaking of terms, you also use the term intersectionality a lot in your book. And this is like an important concept in your book. What do you mean when you use that term, uh, Molly? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. And I was going to say, I know Mary teaches a lot about this. So Mary, (laughs) we want to jump in as well. But one of the things we thought was exciting is this is a term, of course, that I teach like my students in in classes at CUNY and at Gutman. But we thought that... um, this case study really allowed us to show it in practice, like what it really looks like in reality, right? So, um, you know, in terms of defining intersectionality, when we talk about it, we're talking about the intersections of of people's, you know, backgrounds and positionality and, and those that are, um, I'm losing my words here, but those that are, you know, treated poorly because of those aspects of their background and positionality, right? And, and the intersection of those that we see. So, Barry, if you want to jump in on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I mean, I think Asbury is a great example of intersectionality. So, I mean, it's certainly not a term we developed. Right. It's a um, it's a a way of understanding and looking at lived experiences, um, you know, that comes out of feminist work, um, black feminist work and the idea of how different um, axes of identity, different variables of identity intersect in individuals lives. Um, and we were able to see this in practice. Um, sometimes it's easier with an example. So I, I know we're going to talk about employment in a little bit, but the experiences of West Side residents of color who are younger in terms of employment is different than those who are older, right? So it's hard to make blanket statements, for example, um, without understanding the nuances of the way different variables or different you know, parts of individuals' identity intersect um, to impact opportunities um, and also constraints, right? Um, So intersectionality, I think, provides a really important lens, um, you know, in in all of our work, right? Because we tend to, uh, or people tend to think in in broader generalizations, but really there's nuance within categories, right? Not all experiences of women in the labor market, for example, 
are the same, right? Race plays a role, age plays a role, ability, disability, immigrant status, right? So we began to kind of use this lens to parse out some of those nuances um, that was occurring, right? So being a local resident, even that category, it needs to be understood within an intersectional lens, how age, how race um, interplays here. Um, so we, um, I mean, I, I think we find it and we certainly do use it in our classes too, in encouraging our students at CUNY to think with that lens, right? To think about how different aspects of their identity um, are at play um, in different um, environments. So I think, you know, in terms of Asbury, we can talk more about the different ways that intersectionality is, is lived, right? Um, and yeah, in people's lives. Absolutely. Oh, sorry. I was just going to add another kind of example of it. So we know it's this analytical framework that helps us understand sort of the overlapping discrimination and privilege. And I think the LGBTQ community and the experiences there. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that that community has been at times kind of blamed and studied around gatrification. But we also talk in the book about how that community is facing displacement and has particular um, concerns about what's happening and how that will affect different members of the LGBTQ community in Asbury Park. So that intersectional lens really helped us look at that. And of course, helps us look at our own positionality as, you know, white middle class female professors from, you know, out of Asbury Park and how we have to, you know, constantly kind of understand our own positionality and then learn from the residents that we're, we were working with. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Absolutely. Uh, so thinking about uh, all of the complexities that you're trying to tap into and analyze, what m research methods did you use to conduct your research and try to access all these different layers of meaning? Uh, um, whoever wants to jump I, in. Sorry, you that. <laughs> Mary, you've got the ball. Um, so we actually um, used, uh, for the most part, as much ethnography, ethnographic methods as we could, right? So we did um, focus groups, we did interviews, we did observations um, in, um, in Asbury Park. Um, we also did some historical content analysis research. Um, and then we worked um, with a um, quantitative researcher, uh, Sean McMahon, who we mentioned in the book who was able to use some of the large data sets to get at some of the employment changes over time, housing prices over time, um, to provide that context. So we did, there is mixed methods um, in our book, both, um, you know, analysis of existing data sets, um, but also the um, original ethnographic methods. Um, and, you know, it, we did it over a series of time, over a series of years, right? So as ethnographers, um, you know, we try to as best, um, you know, immerse in the community. But um, as Molly mentioned, it's also really critical um, as researchers to understand our own positionality um, in that research. Um, and um, that, I think, is also kind of something that we, we try to, um, to do. 
Right. I'll just add that we did. So we conducted the research from 2016 to 2019. As Mary said, we did focus groups and interviews. We had 81 participants in those focus groups and interviews. Um, and this kind of goes back to your last question, too, about intersectionality. But something important to remember is what was happening like in the political context while we were conducting this research. So um, basically, our research was sort of over the period of the Trump administration. Um, so in terms of, again, intersectionality and different populations we were we were looking to access and to speak with, we we had some challenges around um people in Asbury Park who were not born in this country, who were very nervous about what was happening um, and, and participating in any kind of research. So we had to, you know, work through that to get participants and also the LGBTQ community. So we talk in the book about the changes that we're seeing, you know, within the LGBTQ community. We have this quote about how young people can now articulate their transgender experiences and a lot of talk in the book about gay bars and nightclubs that now, you know, have bachelorette parties coming in and a much more accepting and welcoming environment overall. But that wasn't always, you know, the feeling during these years when we were doing this research. There was there was a lot of fear and concern about where we were headed in in terms of that. And keeping Asbury Park as a safe hub for LGBTQ plus individuals was very important to a lot of the people that we interviewed. Right. Well, speaking of the LGBTQ community, um, Asbury Park, as you mentioned, has a reputation of being um, particularly LGBTQ friendly. Is that reputation warranted? Um, Molly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we trace the history there again. And, uh, you know, we weren't doing an in-depth historical work here in our book. We also, you know, looked at the work of uh, David Goldberg, who's a historian who did a lot of this longer, you know, more um, in the in the past uh, work, but we did look at you know current residents and their experiences over the last 20, 30 years in Asbury Park, and um, yeah, it's a very important place in the LGBTQ community. It's the longest you know it has the longest running gay nightclub. It had the first same gender marriage in New Jersey. Again, we trace that history you know back using other sources to you know long before the New York Times was writing about the LGBTQ presence in the community. Um, we felt that the fact that it avoided sort of the fate of other quote unquote Jersey Shore communities left it open to being this sort of safe place for the community. Um, but again, yeah, there there was a fear um, and feeling of insecurity about what was happening nationally in terms of policy and where our country could be going. And um, we can talk more about this later, but we concluded our research and like submitted a book draft on New Year's Eve of 2019. Um, so right before the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think, you know, uh, Something we have learned now is that much of what we found is still incredibly, if not more relevant than it was when we finished writing. But it was a sort of different, different political and, you know, cultural context in the moment when we were doing this research. Right, right. And um, you, uh, um, Mary, you talk uh, in the book about how the railroad tracks serve as a symbol of the east side, west side division of the city. Could, Could you speak a little bit about that? And just how stark are the is the divide between the two sides of the city? Yeah, so the railroad um, literally divides the city um, into an east side, which is obviously the beachfront side, and then the west side on the other side. Um, and um, we have a quote in our book from one of our um, a resident on the west side that talks not just about the physical railroad track, but also the emotional uh, 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 experience of crossing those tracks, right? So it's very much a physical demarcation, but also a very symbolic, right? Um, and what, um, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, for example, when we talked with 
some individuals on the West side, just going over to the East side can be, you know, was traumatizing in ways, right? Hyper-policing, they talked about going into uh, stores and not um, being served food um, at restaurants um, and then um, access to jobs. Now, the other thing, and we can talk more about, um, you know, what we also saw and what we learned um, from some of the workforce development programs is there have been um, really inroads in trying to provide access to jobs on the east side. Um, so we talk about in the book, for example, two workforce development programs, one that's actually located on the east side, Salt School, and one on the west side, the Kula Cafe. Um, and that's also where intersectionality comes into play on who is helping get, get access to these jobs. Um, so despite you know the fact there is this demarcation of the railroad tracks, um, there is also, there is a work being done to try to bring together, I think the workforce development plan is called one Asbury or something to that effect, right? Um, so I think, you know, in understanding that um, we, when we did observations, for example, um, we did see um, a diverse group of people working in some of the restaurants and the hotels on the east side in the summer months. So I think it is a powerful symbolic um, uh, experience of crossing those tracks, as we heard from from the folks that we talked with, um, and also something that the town is aware of. It's not a, a, a like a secret thing, right? So I think that also um, is um, something that you know people are aware of. They talk about the two sides, the two sides, but also talk about the importance of doing bringing together. So for example, they also have a park where they have music Mondays on the west side now, um, and um, that people you know are beginning to kind of what are ways we can come together as a community. Right. Um, and so, um, uh, Molly, what, what, what is the racial and class composition of Asbury Park? Well, let's see. There are uh, it's, it's a, about 15,900 residents in Asbury Park. So we're talking about a small beachfront, you know, community. We're not talking about a huge population. Although, again, those quantitative numbers, um, you know, might not be fully accurate. And I would have to pull them up to look at the exact numbers for you. But um, I think it's about a 30% overall poverty rate, but that is much higher um, with children. I think it's closer to a 50% poverty in the 40s. Um, I'd have to pull up that, my quantitative numbers in the book, um, percent poverty rate amongst children. Um, and definitely we see that divide along the railroad track. So on the east side where we have the developer, iStar, who has, you know, developed the properties, we see much higher income residents. Um, it's a much, you know, much whiter, higher income community, uh, much more white collar. So in the book, we also look at how there's been an increase in white collar jobs and a loss of like what we traditionally say, like blue collar working jobs. Um, as well as a decrease in the black population, an increase in the white population, a decrease in populations without a college education, and an increase in those with a college education. Mary, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, and then we, and exactly, I think that that's a good overview. And then we also talk about in the book what that means in terms of, of jobs, for example. So changes in the labor market that we see an increase in retail jobs, hotel, uh, hospitality jobs. Um, and um, what does that mean in terms of who's getting those jobs? Right. So there seems to be a boom in in development on the east side. Uh, <laughs> to to what extent, Mary, does the development on the east side provide jobs for residents of color in Asbury? 
Yeah, so that was a really important question that we were really interested in understanding. And the answer is, it's a mixed answer, right? Um, So and that's, again, where intersectionality comes into play. Um, So um, thinking about um, what we saw, um, there was a concerted effort, for example, with the the larger employers, the, the hotels, for example, to develop a workforce development program, not just for local residents, but um, but for individuals, many of whom were local residents, to get some training um, and then from there get access to jobs. Um, and what we saw there was that um, for many younger local residents, younger local residents of color, that sometimes did really translate into jobs for them. Absolutely. Um, and um, whether it was at the Asbury Hotel, the Asbury Lanes, um, the Kula Cafe on the west side also has a hospitality training program. Um, that also works um, in addition with wraparound services, which we know are so important um, in terms of workforce development. So that what those do you mean by wraparound services. Um, so it, it was also in addition to actual training, like skills training. There also we need to talk about what else do people need in order to survive to to thrive in the workforce, right? So maybe it's access to childcare, maybe it's access to other uh, financial supports during training, for example. Um, so that becomes, that was really important. So we saw for particularly younger residents, they were opportunities there where we began to see more of the challenges which were older workers, workers with criminal records, for example, um, where those opportunities didn't um, materialize for a variety um, of reasons that we talk about in the book. Um, and the other challenge that we see um, is um, New Jersey and suburban New Jersey is very car dependent, right? Um, so jobs that would have been available, like jobs at other, let's say, big box stores or are not in Asbury Park, right? Uh, grocery stores, et cetera. So people would need access to cars um, for the most part to get those jobs or, you know, or take very long bus rides, for example. So um, that displacement, I think, is also really important when we talk about opportunities, um, so, you know, in part, some of those opportunities for younger people came in, you know, were about the Asbury's funky vibe, right? I mean, so they sort of fit what we call the aesthetic labor um, that uh, hotels, restaurants, et cetera, were lo- are looking for, right? Um, so that is really um, something that's harder to do if you're older, if you um, don't fit that they call the brand that's being sold. Um, And we know that aesthetic labor is not unique to Asbury Park, certainly. It's something that um, is part of many industries, particularly the hospitality industry. Um, So that also became a really important kind of aspect of our work is understanding how that got translated, gets translated into the labor market and who that provides opportunities for and not. Right, right. So, so sure, go ahead, Molly. I was just going to add that that idea of the brand of Asbury Park and the production of Asbury Park carried over into other parts of our book as well. So um, not to change the topic off of jobs and employment, but we also heard that around like where where is future development directed and who is it directed for and what are the key demographics in Asbury Park? So we heard this idea that it was a quote unquote adult playground a lot. Um, (laughs) And this might be sort of a different concept for those who are not familiar with New Jersey, but you pay to go on the beaches in New Jersey. So like the access to the beaches and the playgrounds on the beaches and then the splash pads on the boardwalk are not free and accessible to all residents of Asbury Park. um, Although there have been moves to try to, to try to make changes there. 
um, and to try to make it more accessible, but they're not free. Um, so where, you know, where, where are we directing our resources? It's a foodie scene with, you know, expensive restaurants that people come from all over, but it's also, you know, a food desert for many of the longtime residents. So we heard this idea of the kind of brand or the production of Asbury Park quite a few times. Right. And Molly, just uh, staying with the theme of the aesthetic labor for a minute, um, to to what extent uh, did some of the um, uh, uh, West Side residents fit the model of the kind of aesthetic labor that that employers were looking for? Yeah, I think that that gets at this intersectionality again, <laughs> to keep bringing up that. Um, but w- I think... This is where two are where qualitative on the ground ethnographic research is really so important. And I've seen this in all of my work in different case studies in different places. Um, but we we really went in, I think, thinking that we wouldn't see any like and, and even based on initial focus groups and interviews with folks so like we really felt that we would not see a lot of or any. I should say, we wouldn't see any West Side residents or people of color kind of in those places, in those trendy new spots on the east side of town um, or on the beach. And then in reality, that was not the case. We went in and, you know, we did see many young people of color either, you know, walking on the boardwalk or employed. Uh, Overwhelmingly, there were still also a lot of like, you know, white millennials from other areas and young college students from other suburban New Jersey towns working in those jobs. But it wasn't that there were no, absolutely no West Side residents or people of color on the beach or in those jobs. And it was really important for us to, you know, to do that research firsthand because it's easy to hear that story. Um, But the reality was more complicated and more nuanced. Right. And um, uh, uh, Mary, we heard uh, Molly mention a minute ago about um, the kind of uh, general aims of the developers. Uh, so to 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 get into that a little bit more, how do employers view the economic development in Asbury, and um, what are their experiences hiring workers from the West Side, uh, people of color? Yeah, so many of I mean, there's some large developers, but there are a lot of small business owners um, in Asbury Park, um, and um, you know, it was really interesting talking with some of them because they very much saw a strong commitment to social justice, a small, a strong commitment to local hiring, to giving back to the community. Um, and their challenge was often how to do that. So they can't like spring up a workforce development program. You know, they're just trying to survive. Right. Um, and um, so that became one of the, the challenges. We did have examples of some business owners who really did, you know, try to, I mentioned the wraparound services at the larger workforce development program. Uh, we had, you know, a, a small business owner that also talked about trying to help workers get access to stable housing, for example. Um, so it was, you know, it's, I think, something we see um, that's important, right? So there's a commitment there. There's definitely a commitment, and but materializing that can be challenging for larger structural reasons. Um, and that's really like one of the recommendations that we talk about in the book is how do we develop, um, you know, public-private partnerships to develop programs, workforce development programs that can do that training um, for small businesses, right? Um, because the other thing is, I mean, small businesses often need people who can hit the ground running, right? They don't have large HR departments that are going to involve in training. You know, they are they are trying to survive um, in their busy seasons and then trying to also survive in the less busy winter season. And then, you know, we can also talk about how COVID has, has impacted small businesses because um, we spoke with all of those individuals pre-COVID. 
Um, and, um, you know, that also, you know, in terms of hiring and sustaining um, and just trying to survive through the, um, the shutdowns has been very challenging. Sure. Um, so, Molly, you mentioned before about the LGBTQ community. Um, to, to what extent do they play a role in the gentrification process in Asbury Park? Yes. I mean, in the book, we definitely look at sort of the early 2000s as a turning point. Uh, we explore how there were certainly LGBTQ residents and community and a strong community, a strong, vibrant community of LGBTQ residents there prior to that, but how there seemed to be sort of a shift in Asbury Park in the early 2000s, where a lot more individuals with more money from New York City in particular were coming into Asbury Park, um, able to do gut renovations, you know, big renovations of older properties. There's uh, beautiful homes in Asbury Park that were really appealing um, and how you know, we know this from from gentrification literature, how that can, you know, sometimes signal, you know, further investment from developers, from those on the outside into a community. And and that's really what we see. We see a shift there in terms of um, more more money, more outside influence, more people from New York City coming in in the early 2000s and sort of. And then now we see a shift to that, like beyond the LGBTQ community, certainly to just more people from northern New Jersey and New York City metropolitan area investing in Asbury Park. And um, again, with COVID, we're even seeing that this is, you know, more extreme. So this is an interesting moment in terms of gentrification research, right? Because during the COVID-19 pandemic, we see some real estate influx, right? Suburban real estate on the rise, people at least in the beginning stages sort of leaving cities. Um, But Asbury Park here in this sort of seasonal gentrification piece becomes important again, because the beginning of remote, you know, the increase in the ability to do remote work, uh, people wanting to have more space has led to an increase in second home ownership. You know, we see this across the country. There's data on, you know, vacation home communities on the rise. And Asbury Park actually had its most expensive real estate purchase in the history of Asbury Park during the summer of 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic for a property that I believe was listed at like 5.98 million when it was listed in the Asbury Ocean Club, which was the newest, you know, fancy, uh, one of the new fancy I-Star uh, hotels and condo developments right on the east side. So we see how, you know, this is accelerated beyond what we were talking about in the early 2000s and um, sort of plays into what Mary was just mentioning too. And when we when we look at the stages of gentrification, right, we often see like small businesses and that diverse community being part of the quote unquote brand that appeals to a lot of new gentrifiers. And then we see this process sort of accelerate and what we sometimes call super gentrification, where those initial gentrifiers are then gentrified out of the community. And that could go to include small business owners as well. So they're also nervous about, you know, their rents going up and their real estate becoming too expensive. And then it just becoming, you know, sort of luxury, big, you know, bigger brands that are able to survive in the community. Um, So we sort of are seeing we're at at a bit of a pivotal moment, I would say, in that process in Asbury Park. Right. And um, Mary, Molly mentioned before that the um, uh, um, going on the beach and other amenities by the beach are not free. Uh, How does the admissions fees for the beach access affect the racial makeup of those who use it? Yeah. So um, in th- that is not just true of Asbury, though. It is true of New Jersey um, that um, beaches um, charge um, for um, during the during the typically the day hours like it starts at like 8 30 in the morning and goes to like four in the afternoon um and then often there's also charging for parking um tied to that 
um, in most in Asbury and also in other um, beach communities. So obviously that's a barrier, right, uh, for people who cannot afford. Um, they are seasonal passes um, that I don't. I forget what they are. They're at. They're at. They're. Um, they're charging for. Um, that you can get in addition to daily passes. Um, but what we saw um, was obviously, and children are free um, typically to go on the beach, but their parents aren't. So, you know, that is another another issue. Um, but I also think what Asbury, we talk about in the book, initiatives on providing free beach badges and fundraising free beach badges for local residents um, to go to the beach. Because the other thing, when you're going during the paying hours, you do have lifeguards on duty. Um, and that is really important, obviously, in terms of safety. Um, so I think, you know, that is a larger kind of challenge in New Jersey broadly. Um, and I think Asbury has been trying to find ways to more democratize access to the beach um, and kind of address that barrier. Um, but they are, it, it is an impact, obviously. Right. And that's, right. there's a history historical piece to that as well, right? So there are residents who have lived in Asbury Park for a very long time. And we go back to the founding of Asbury Park and the segregation and how that reverberates and how people grew up going to beaches outside of Asbury Park, even if they were Asbury Park residents, right? And they might still make those choices. And uh, we were doing a case study of a young man named Elijah, who we feature in the book. And during that case study, a little, uh, a little guy came in, he was seven years old. And it was like, a really hot summer day, I remember, because Mary and I had been out doing ethnographic observations all day in the heat of summer. And we asked him if he ever goes to the beach. And he was an Asbury Park resident. And no, he said he'd never, he doesn't go to the beach. Um, so, you know, that's not everybody's experiences. And if you walk along the beach in Asbury, you're going to see lots of different languages being spoken. You're going to see people from all different demographics and different backgrounds. But um, there is a real division there in the community. And it and and we heard it. We heard a number of residents who say if they do go to the beach, they go at night um, when it's free. And they, that, that was definitely one of their experiences. And, um, and just that it isn't a part of their Asbury. So we also, we asked um, everyone that we interviewed and in the focus groups, I think everyone, right, Mary, at least in the focus mm-hmm. groups, we asked them for like, what is their iconic image? Or if they could take one picture of Asbury Park, what would it be? It was really interesting to get at, you know, the east side views of Asbury Park, um, which were sort of the traditional, the beach, the boardwalk. And uh, and for west side residents, like their Asbury Park, uh, in many ways, was very different. What kinds of answers did they give for, for uh, what their iconic Asbury picture is? Yeah, we would hear about uh, like the park on that side of town. We heard, we did hear, you know, we did hear the beach sometimes and like, is that sort of, and, and sometimes there were even pictures on the wall where we were doing it. So that would sometimes influence people to say Tilly or the other kind of iconic Asbury Park pieces. But then we would ask further, have you ever been to the Stone Pony, which is like the famous um, concert hall in Asbury Park? Have you, do you go to the beach? Have you been to any of the restaurants in the boardwalk? And we would hear that even if that image might be in their head, as far as Asbury Park is concerned, they had never, um, they weren't interested in accessing those amenities because this just didn't represent what was either interesting to them or wasn't accessible. Wow. Wow. Um, uh, I know, Molly, that you are uh, a scholar of education and school systems. Uh, I'm wondering what are the particular educational challenges resulting from the seasonal gentrification in Asbury Park? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in, in the field of urban education, you know, there are many many challenges that we look at as researchers. Um, 
related to urban education systems in general, there are issues around segregation and underfunding. There are flawed measures that we use to assess schools and school quality. We see all of those in Asbury Park, right? Then there are sort of measures that we use to understand our this is a growing field, um, gentrification and education, really, even just in the last like five to 10 years, we see a lot more scholars studying gentrification and education now. But we know that there's often, um, we say gentrification can stop at the quote unquote schoolhouse door, as Nicole Hannah-Jones says, where gentrifiers aren't opting into local schools, um, using school choice measures to avoid local schools or opting into local schools. And then there's within school segregation. Um Pilot agreements are not unique to Asbury Park. Those are payments in lieu of taxes that developers make. Those are agreements um, where rather than paying your regular taxes, where up to like 50% might go into the schools, you pay, and it can look different in in different agreements, but you pay into like a special fund or something. Um, That's common in gentrifying communities. And then, of course, the displacement of local residents from the community leads to issues in the schooling, and you can't look at education policy without looking at that. But I would say seasonally, there's like a third layer. So we have sort of urban education, gentrification and urban education, and then this seasonal thing, which is really that second home owners are going to be just inherently probably less invested in the school system since their children attend school elsewhere. Unlikely to know children and families who attend the school system because of their relationship as second homeowners and when they access the community. Um, and then with that, perhaps less interest in sort of amenities again, these wraparound services for children that you might have in other communities to support them inside and outside of school. And that was something we heard a lot, um, like a need for more of like uh, youth development kind of organizations and spaces for young people in the community. Oh, and, and, right. and the lack of the potential, like at least accusations over a lack of support for, for funding and increased taxes for schools from people who aren't going to be sending children to those schools. Wait, sorry. The last part was that people who are not sending their children to the schools resist increases in taxes for the schools. Or just yeah, and we even saw in Asbury Park in particular. We even saw it was the first time I've seen this in my research where people actually talked about like, do we even need our own school system? Um, or you know, could, because uh, there is interdistrict choice and there are other measures that that um, Asbury Park families can use. So this was kind of used on all. And we heard it from different people as one a major fear. But also from some people as like, do we, it's a very, um, it's it's known to be one of the, you know, higher funded school districts in sometimes ranked number one in the state of New Jersey. I'm not sure what the current rankings are. And everything, again, is in flux right now um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we use very flawed measures, right, to assess schools and school success. But by one thing we do know in education research is that parents do look at those flawed measures. Um, and, you know, according to those measures, the school system looks like it's not achieving, you know, where most of the residents would like it to be. And we, and we did hear that from families as well, that it's not up to up to where they would like it to be. But many residents also said, you know, there's great things happening in the Asbury Park school system that its reputation um, is not accurate. And those measures don't don't do it justice. Right. All right. Well, uh, clearly there's a lot of challenges that Asbury Park faces and your, your book does a really good job of, of laying those out. Um, so, uh, Mary, what are some of the suggestions that you offer in the book to help make uh, Asbury a, a fear uh, place to live and to raise the quality of life for all of its residents? Yeah. So, and I think um, those suggestions that we talk about now in particular, we also need to talk about them in connection to COVID. I know we've said that many times, but um, I mean, some of the things that we really need to talk about is the importance of living wages, right? For jobs. Um, 
that people can actually get access to health, universal health care, for example. That's another factor. So these are kind of bold policy recommendations that Asbury cannot necessarily do that, that need larger um, legislative support um, that we talk about uh, child care funding also. Right. So we do think kind of broader kind of new social contract policies will obviously have a, lar- a positive effect on um, on Asbury. But then at the more local level. Um, you know, we do, we talk about the importance of employment and training programs, right, and fully funding them um, in order to provide opportunities. You know, we need to talk about uh, workforce policies that, you know, deal with expungement of criminal records, for example, particularly people who had charges from 20 years ago, um, now impacting their employment decades later. Um, we, they, uh, we also do need to talk about support for small businesses, right? Um, so while, you know, many of the businesses are, as we mentioned, kind of locally owned uh, family businesses, how can we work? How can the, the city work to ensure that they survive? Right. Um, and then, um, you know, we need to talk about affordable housing. Right. We um, need to talk about rent stabilization, for example. Um, uh, there are many programs in New Jersey on you know, energy savings for seniors, for example. Um, so larger, you know, social programs, I think, that can help support um, housing, employment, health care um, are, are really critical. And then now with COVID, you know, we really, um, you know, need to kind of think even more boldly. Um, um, so last summer, um, Asbury was not at, a, I mean, New Jersey was not at 100% capacity. I mean, it's still not. Um, as of, as of this taping, right? Um, so I believe indoor dining is at 50% now. Um, so that has <laughs> around 50 for me. Uh, um, but that has, I mean, obviously there's important safety and health reasons as to why that's the case. Um, but that does have an impact on towns like Asbury Park, which are based on a tourism and a hospitality, um, hospitality base, right? So last summer, if it was beautiful weather, you could have outdoor dining. But if it was raining and windy, you're not going to sit on the beach right, and, and you know, eat your steak. So it's just not. Um, so I think we also need to um, kind of think about COVID recovery now um, as part of um, what's happening. Um, and we'll see this summer, I think, um, I, that things potentially could be different this summer as more people are vaccinated and um, you know, we're moving perhaps to a new normal, but what that new normal means, we don't know. Um, and what the impact of that new normal will be. I mean, the growth of remote work, for example, with second homeowners, we don't know what that will mean. So if you can now, many people can now work anywhere and live, I mean, work their job, but live anywhere, that um, could have an impact on um, what Asbury's and, and towns like Asbury will look like. Right, right. Well, obviously, so much uh, to think about. Um, uh, before we conclude, I'm wondering, now that your book has been out for a little while, has there been a reaction? I mean, there's a lot of things that you talk about, about gentrification, about racial issues, class issues, employment, things that could be sensitive topics. Has there been a response, especially from uh, people who live in or near Asbury? I can start there. Uh 
Sure. I mean, I think we we try very hard in our work and in our um, when we when we discuss our work to make it really clear that uh, we are not coming into a community as outsiders saying this is the problem that we discovered and here is how to fix that problem. Right? We talk in the book about how <laughs> there have been many people who have come in and tried to discuss this and try. I think there's a quote somewhere in the book about like all the plans on the shelf, right, to to fix these problems and. We are operating, I mean, all of Mary's recommendations there, right? All of these policy ideas still are within this system, this capitalist system with systemic racism and all of these like major things that we're operating within. And we acknowledge throughout the book, um, you know, are are the main barriers to to the success we would like to see. So we, we try very hard to make that clear and that that many, many of the actors that we met, many of the individuals that we met in Asbury Park are very aware of this, a very um, want to be more aware of this, want to learn more about it, want to understand their role in it and what they can do to improve it, um, which is why we thought it was a great case study because it is sort of this pivotal moment for a community. And we've seen what happens in many other communities and how gentrification kind of without proper policy initiatives um, in place can just like unbridled gentrification, what that can lead to in terms of displacement and complete change of a community and its culture. So I think, um, you know, we've gotten a lot of a lot of positive response to that. Um, anytime you do a case study and, and, and locals read about it, I think it's great. You hear from people who are like, oh, let me tell you this story or my story lines up with this or this is the story of, you know, I, I was displaced from that community and my story is a little bit different because I have this background. Um, so we've heard that as well from 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 people. And, um, you know, I always find myself wanting to do more. Like, can we write another book about it? Can we do a follow-up <laughs> book about it now? It's COVID. So the, the environment has changed. We should do it again. Um, but I think, you know, I, that that always happens, especially with a case study where you name the community. And, um, you know, we are very receptive to the to feedback from people who would, you know, agree or disagree with our findings or have different experiences. We don't try to say this is the definitive story of Asbury Park, right? Sure, sure. Um, so last question. Uh, could you tell us, uh, each of you, could you tell us a little bit about a new project that you're working on now? Um, I'll, uh, Mary, if you want to start off. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> you know, in terms of new projects, <laughs> you know, um, I think one of the things um, I'm actually interested in that I've been doing some preliminary reading in and thinking about is actually not as much to do with this topic, but still around employment. Um, and um, caring labor throughout a woman's career, right? So what is the impact of caring labor on the gender pay gap, for example, promotions, advancement, et cetera, not just at the the age, not just in terms of childcare, but kind of sustained caring that many people are doing um, throughout, you know, it, particularly, I think COVID's impacting this more too, um, but um, the sustained impact um, and, you know, in terms of women, we're seeing women leaving the labor force right now in much higher numbers than we ever had at one. Uh, I forget when it was January, February, all the job losses were women. Um, so what is the impact going on? What is going on in terms of women's labor force? So that's something that I've been kind of beginning to like think through as a new project. Wow. Fascinating. Um, Molly? Sure. I'm in the midst of a project right now. Um, we're just kind of concluding data collection around uh, school integration activists in New York City during COVID-19 and how that has, you know, affected school act integration activism. Um, and then more related to this project, I think, again, something interesting that happens when you 
when you publish your your work on a case study like this is you hear from people who say, oh, hey, that sounds really familiar. That sounds like our community. Um, so we've heard that from people in, in different places, like kind of across the country. So I don't know if it, what will come from it, but it's something that Mary and I have talked about and that I might be interested in looking at is sort of like other communities that have this seasonal aspect to the gentrification process and maybe like a more, you know, national study or looking at to see how, you know, how it does apply or does not um, what we learned in Asbury Park. Wow. Wow. So, so fascinating. Uh, Molly, Mary, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.